Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look beyond our shores to other examples of anti-democratic forces seeking to take control of governments in Germany, Brazil, and Peru, all of which echo in some form or fashion the coup attempt on January 6, 2021 by pro-Trump insurrectionists. Clips today are from The World, All In With Chris Hayes, The Rachel Maddow Show, DW News, Democracy Now!, and The Beat, with an additional members-only clip from This Is Hell. In the capital, Brasilia, supporters of the country's far-right former president, Jair Bolsonaro, stormed the parliament, its Supreme Court, and presidential palace on Sunday. The rioters smashed windows, lit fires, and clashed with police. They're claiming that Bolsonaro's electoral defeat last October was fraudulent. There is no evidence to support their claims. Still, Bolsonaro supporters are demanding a new vote. More than a thousand of the rioters were detained by Brazilian authorities at the scene. Today, other protesters were lighting fires to block one of the most important roads in Sao Paulo. Guilherme Casaroyos has been closely tracking the situation. He's a professor at the Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo. Guilherme, world leaders across the region have condemned last night's political violence in Brazil. How have Brazilians themselves generally reacted? Watching what happened yesterday in Brazil is like watching a remake of a bad movie that we already had the chance to watch in the United States. So uh, pretty much everything that happens in Brazil right now is an emulation of whatever has taken place in the United States under Trump. It didn't really come as a surprise for Brazilians that at some point some hardcore Bolsonaro supporters would try to storm into uh, public buildings such as Supreme Court building, Congress building, and the presidential palace. Things are very divided in Brazil right now. So there is a part of those who support Bolsonaro who are against violent uh, demonstrations. They, they are trying to distance themselves from whatever uh, has taken place in Brasilia. But at the same time, I have the feeling that for the first time after the elections on October 30th, even some who support Bolsonaro are vocally condemning the kind of acts that, that we saw yesterday in Brasilia. It's uh, a blow not only against the physical structures that we have in the capital city, but also a blow on Brazil's democracy. Even with a template, though, of January 6, 2021 in Washington, no shock uh, as to what happened. I mean, this comes after the new president, Lula da Silva, was sworn in. There's a few differences between what happened in the United States and what happened yesterday in Brazil. The the most important difference, I'd say, is the fact that Brazil's far right not only draws on Trumpism, but also draws on the 1960s and 70s militarism of, of Brazilian conservative movements. So we have this uh, track record of military coups d'etat. We have a track record of state violence, which somehow these Bolsonaro supporters are trying to tap into. So one of their main claims, uh, many of them are camping in front of military headquarters and they are asking for military intervention along the same lines from what we saw in the 1960s. One of the most concerning aspects of all that is that Bolsonaro, who's currently in, in Florida, so he, he he's not in Brazil anymore. He fled the country two days before Lula's inauguration. He hasn't really condemned what 
what happened in Brasilia, and he hasn't conceded at all ever since he lost the elections. Right. So former President Bolsonaro, as he said, was in Florida when this attack was taking place. Can he be linked in any way to these events? It seems clear that Bolsonaro was the one who most eloquently supported these anti-democratic demonstrations in Brazil. Since the pandemic started uh, in 2020, Bolsonaro still gathered thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands of people in the streets to protest on his behalf. There seems to be a lot of financing, a lot of private funding to these movements. And this is one of the main lines of investigation of the Supreme Court right now. Who is uh, really behind these movements? We're talking about a very complex network of politicians, government officials, the military, people who spread fake news on WhatsApp and, 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 and somehow try to incite anti-democratic uh, coup attempts in the country. So this complex network has been around for at least four years now. So you mentioned earlier Brazil's history under military dictatorships. A string of dictators ended in 1985. We know Jair Bolsonaro fostered a close relationship with some officers in the Brazilian military. So as Bolsonaro acolytes, do these rioters want to return to military rule? Most Bolsonaro supporters have a very twisted idea of what democracy is about. So they think that democracy is the rule of the majority with no checks and balances whatsoever. So the fact that Bolsonaro was elected back in 2018 would automatically allow them to pass any kind of legislation or to do whatever they, they wanted to do with minorities in the country, for example. So that somehow reminds us of what happened in the military dictatorship back in 1964. Protesters in the streets, for example, they've been demanding a military intervention with Bolsonaro in power, which doesn't make much sense if you think about it, because a military coup would naturally sweep across the government and all. But um, that's the kind of rationale that's driving Bolsonaro supporters. They believe that the military are the only possible saviors of the country. And, and of course, Bolsonaro has once again empowered the military. The very fact that Bolsonaro has appointed more than 6,000 military officials to civilian positions in the government. This is very, very symptomatic of the kind of political role the military has been playing in the country. And from what we saw uh, taking place in Brasilia, apparently both uh, police officers and military officials have turned a blind eye to uh, the, the protesters, and they have allowed these protesters to storm into public buildings without resistance whatsoever. Yeah, but at the same time, we mentioned earlier the detention of some thousand rioters on the scene in Brasilia. So where do the Brazilian authorities, the police and security forces actually fit into these events? The military police of the capital city of Brasilia should be responsible uh, for securing the perimeter, and they didn't do it yesterday. They had uh, intelligence reports saying that people were planning to storm into the, these buildings, and they did nothing to stop them. And we also know that some military officials, some high-ranked military officials, didn't want to remove the protesters from the front of the military headquarters across the country. Well, no one could say they weren't warned. Warning signs were there all along. It started months ago when Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing populist then-president of Brazil, claimed with zero evidence that there was an electoral steal underway, that the voting machines could not be trusted. Now, Bolsonaro and Donald Trump are big fans of each other. Even their kids are friendly. 
Bolsonaro's son Eduardo posted this picture with Donald Trump Jr. at a Las Vegas gun show in 2018. He and his family even visited the White House on the eve of the American insurrection, January 5th, 2021, posting this picture with Ivanka Trump. The elders Trump and Bolsonaro have a lot in common, from their right-wing politics to the way they both treated the coronavirus while in office to the unfounded claims of vote-stealing in their respective elections. So it's unsurprising there were blaring warnings that Bolsonaro was winding up his supporters exactly the same way Trump was. And when Bolsonaro lost, like Trump, he didn't concede. He quietly authorized a transition and then basically fled the country. He spent Inauguration Day, when he was supposed to be passing the presidential sash to his successor, in Trump's home state of Florida, where he's been for a while, spending time at a KFC restaurant in Orlando, and recently being admitted to an area hospital for abdominal pain related to the stabbing he suffered at a campaign event in 2018. But this past Sunday, one week after that inauguration that Bolsonaro was absent from, a right-wing pro-Bolsonaro mob stormed the Brazilian capital in scenes that eerily mirrored the U.S. Capitol two years ago. Look at that. Brazilian version of the infamous QAnon shame was even featured at a Brazilian Independence Day rally in 2021, shouting support for Bolsonaro. But what happened on Sunday as the mob marauded through the government buildings in Brasilia was more than symbolic resonance. The Washington Post reports that after losing the election, Bolsonaro's son sought advice from former Trump advisors Steve Bannon and Jason Miller. There are notable differences, however, in the two riots. The first is that in Brazil, they were a little late. The transfer of power had already happened. In fact, it was a Sunday and lawmakers and officials were at home. Their offices were closed. So they were not terrified for their lives. There was, they were not there for the mob to delay or attempt to stop some kind of process that had happened. The other incredibly striking difference, one I just can't quite get over, is how the day in Brasilia ended compared to how it happened in Washington, D.C. In the U.S., just about everyone who stormed the Capitol were able to just leave. Many went back to their hotel lobbies to revel in what they'd done and post their Instagram videos. But what you are seeing here is what the end of the day looked like in Brazil, where police got their act together and made hundreds of arrests that day, marching the perpetrators back down the very ramp they used to invade the seat of government. Brazil's new president, Lula, promised to bring those responsible to justice, as roughly a thousand Bolsonaro supporters have been so far arrested in connection with the violence. Even the local governor of the state that Brasilia is in was suspended by a Brazilian Supreme Court justice on allegations of abetting the riot. He's a big Bolsonaro supporter. And maybe if the U.S. can export this model of attempted authoritarian coup to Brazil... Well, then perhaps Brazil can export back a model of real accountability for the perpetrators and the planners. In terms of how tyranny works and how authoritarianism works, um, I'm a little bit worried that I'm seeing this through too American a lens, and I'm seeing all of this recent American precedent for the sort of thing that we saw in Brazil this weekend. Should I be looking at this with a wider and more international lens, that this is the sort of thing that authoritarian movements and far-right movements do all the time? This shouldn't echo January 6th so much as we should see it as a typical right-wing fascist pro-authoritarian tactic that people use all over the world. Well, I, I think you're right to, to point to the evident similarities between January 6th and, and January 8th. But I think both January 6th and January 8th, as you suggest, are about larger trends 
two, one of them is the, to discredit institutions. When you storm institutions, when you show you can make yourself physically present in institutions, when you break windows, when you, when you, when you trash the place, what you're showing is symbolically, physically, that institutions don't matter. What matters is force. What matters is, is will. And that, of course, is, the, is one of the oldest, one of the classic anti-democratic or anti-rule of law moves. You show disrespect for the institutions physically, and then all that seems to be left is the possibility that a person, a strongman, something besides these institutions should be running the country. If we can humiliate the institutions, then we get the strongman. And that, that's a logic which is on display here in Brazil and in the U.S., but it's also a classic logic. And then likewise, a lie, an alternative reality. A strong belief among lots of people that what happened is not what happened, that we didn't really lose the vote. You know, we really won the vote. That's common between January 6th and January 8th. But it's also a, tw a big 20th century, 21st century phenomenon, big lies which capture lots of people. But with the recent twist, and I think this is true of both Brazil and the U.S., that it's social media bubbles which allow this to happen. I think there's, a, there's an odd way in which the people who are storming these buildings are kind of emerging from alternative reality into real reality as, as they do it. And they're sure they're right because they're not hearing any other voices in the social media reality where they live. In terms of um, contending with the kind of tactical power of those things that you're describing, think in terms of standing up for democracy, trying to protect democracy against these kinds of forces and attacks, how much does it matter um, that there is swift accountability for the people who participate in it and the people who organize it? One of the differences between January 8th in Brazil, January 6th in the United States, is that we saw a lot of arrests um, in Brazil and that we've got a sitting president who is the successor to Bolsonaro saying that those who participated in this and those who organized it will be held accountable swiftly and, um, and, and surely. What role does accountability in the legal system, the criminal justice system, play in fending this off as a tactic against democracy? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the comparison is absolutely right. And I'm, I'm very pleased for the Brazilian government that they were able to react so quickly. Um, it's very important that people who try to carry out this kind of fascist move are aware that the law also has force beside it. One of the things they're trying to do is monopolize force themselves. They're trying to say, we are the ones who control violence. We intimidate you. We intimidate the law. We're going to do something which is so strange and confusing and violent that you, you won't know how to react to it. And there was a bit of that in the U.S. on January 6th. It was so strange and unexpected and violent that the people just the, the criminals just walked away from the crime scene. That's odd. We didn't we didn't see that in Brazil today. And it's really important. It's really important because things like this, they're kind of a test of force. The, the people who are on the far right, that's what they believe in. They believe in force. And if they don't meet any force on the other end, then they're going to continue. And that doesn't mean that the people who are defending law should be unpredictable. It means that they should be predictable. It means that they should be confident that something like this is a crime and that the pictures like the ones we're seeing, where if you commit a crime, you go and destroy property, you commit all kinds of crimes, that you might just be, end up on a bus, you know, handcuffed, that that's normal. The democracies, because the story that fascists always tell is democracies are weak. They won't fight back. They're flabby. They're decadent. And I think it's pretty important for democracies to, to be able to say, no, actually, we, we stand for something. And that's something we stand for is law. I think that that point that you just made, too, is very important about how there is a tactical impact to seeming unpredictable, chaotic, weird, strange, um, and that 
treating these things as as crimes, among other things. And, you know, and, and accountability is a is an important concept. Um, but among other things, using the criminal law to respond to things like this has an effect of rationalizing the experience of what the country, what the country has just been through of imposing, um, not only order in terms of people being held accountable, but also a framework of understanding that this is a crime. This is something that exists within our system. It does not destroy our system. Our system itself can handle things like this. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a, that rationalizing force is an important insight. Yeah. And that we're all equal before the law, that we're all yeah. equal before the law. You know, that any of us does something like this. It's very, I mean, this, you, you were asking indirectly about Trump. It's very important for a democracy not to have these superheroes or supervillains who are judged by different standards. It's, it's very important that executives and former executives be subject to the rule of law. Because once you start developing a legal theory according to which they're exceptional people, that little loophole will just grow bigger and bigger all the time. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, who make winter better with thoughtfully designed clothes that make you feel cozy at home, supported during outdoor activities, and good knowing that for every item you purchase, they donate another to someone in need. They use the softest materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy wintertime layers, and their slippers are soft on the outside, but even softer on the inside thanks to materials like fuzzy Sherpa. And for the active among you, Bombas makes temperature-regulating clothing so you can feel more comfortable while jogging or snowboarding or doing whatever you love most. I've been enjoying all of Bombas' materials and features for years now, but of course, my favorite feature is that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items at homeless shelters, which is precisely why that's Bombas' focus with their buy one, gift one model. And so far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. Go to bombas.com best and use the code BEST for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best and use the code BEST at checkout. Early this morning, thousands of German special forces fanned out across the country, a massive raid to dismantle a far-right group plotting to overthrow the government. At the center of it all, Heinrich XIII, a German prince disowned by his aristocratic family, the House of Reuss. His capture was caught on camera. Heinrich is seen wearing a tan blazer. The 71-year-old's wrists are cuffed as police frog-walked him to a van. The group's plan was to storm Germany's parliament and install Heinrich as Germany's new leader, a monarch. Stranger than fiction, and it runs even deeper. Jeff Rathke is president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's in Germany right now. Give us a sense of scale, Jeff. Just how vast and spread out was this raid today? This is one of the largest coordinated law enforcement actions in German history, certainly in recent decades. About 3,000 police officials involved. They searched 150 different locations in 11 states out of Germany's 16 states. And then there were also some raids in Italy and elsewhere for other suspects around 25 arrests and a total of 51 suspects. So you get a sense there that this is a broad network of people and not just a couple of isolated individuals. How shocking a morning was this for Germans? 
Well, I don't want to go too far with the analogy, but you know, you think about the scope of this and the plans that these people had, and this sounds in some ways a little bit like January 6th, doesn't it? Uh, you have uh, people who were ready to use force to, to try to take over and invade the seat of Germany's uh, legislature and uh, really taken everyone by surprise for the scope and the details of what they had in mind. And what do we know about who was arrested? What kind of people are they? Well, there's not a lot of personal detail on many of them, but some of the contours uh, we can see. You mentioned Heinrich von Royce, who is from a former noble family, also apparently at least one ex-officer of the German special forces who was arrested, as well as a non-commissioned officer, at least one police official. And this is particularly interesting, one former member of parliament from the extreme right party called the Alternative for Germany, a woman who was in parliament from 2017 until 2021 and was was among those arrested. She apparently was supposed to become a sort of justice minister for this coup government, and uh, she was indeed a sitting judge. Right. AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, was previously put under surveillance, but they still got pretty far with these plans. What does all this say about this far-right underground movement and their connection to elected lawmakers? Well, there's not any other evidence yet of connections to sitting lawmakers, but it is the case that the AFD party has moved in a more and more extreme direction over recent years. So I think that is one of the most important uh, factors to follow up on here in the coming days and weeks as these cases move forward. Those people who were arrested today, was there a group they were all working for? The group of people arrested today are alleged to have been part of a conspiracy to take over state authority. Uh, these are people who apparently uh, deny the legitimacy of the existing German state. And so they had a number of different functions. One was military uh, to, uh, to use allegedly uh, private security firms to seize power. And then there were also uh, the rudiments of a, of a governmental organization, which these uh, conspiracists had come up with in order to take over civil administration. You know, the conspiracy theories are ridiculous, but the actions and the plans are deadly serious. You mentioned these people believe Germany's government is illegitimate. Do, do they have an ideology? An ideology might be too uh, generous a word, but the, these are people who believe that essentially the monarchist government, which was in place until 1918, was never legally replaced and that it uh, still continues to exist, or at least that the current constitution and government are illegitimate. So uh, that's one thing that alleged ringleader Heinrich von Reuss talked about openly. In German, they're called the Reichsbürger, the imperial citizens. What would you say in the past there was a level of denial that German officials had over the possibility of far-right violence? I think there was a a recognition that it was a problem, but never um, uh, a recognition of the full potential scope and not asking enough questions and not pursuing these connections to the full end. It 
all started with what Peruvians call an autogolpe, a self-coup. Back in December, Peru's embattled president Pedro Castillo staged a failed power grab that triggered his ouster and landed him in prison. The protests that followed have left 49 people dead, some of them as young as 15. For over a month, Castillo's supporters have marched and barricaded streets across the South American country demanding new elections and the removal of current leader Dina Boluarte and frustration about what rights groups denounce as an excessive use of force is only adding fuel to the fire. They carried mock coffins and effigies of their unwanted leaders in jail cells. Thousands of noisy protesters hit the streets of the capital, Lima, to demand the resignation of their president. There's a lot of indignation, pain and suffering. It's having a psychological impact on those of us who are following what's happening in the provinces, especially our brothers and sisters there who are being killed. It's a total massacre. In Cusco, the ancient capital of the Inca Empire, the caskets were real. Locals bid a public farewell to a killed protester. Elsewhere in the city, clashes broke out yet again. Police fired tear gas. Protesters responded with stones and slingshot fire. By night, the violence escalated. The turmoil was triggered by the arrest of former President Pedro Castillo last month after he tried to seize emergency powers to evade impeachment over Slee's allegations. The ensuing crisis has rocked the country. Marcos Quispe was protesting at the airport when he was killed. The police shot him. I don't know who gave the orders. Now we want those responsible for his death to pay for it. Like Marcos, most of the victims hail from working-class heartlands loyal to Castillo. Communities united in recent weeks, in protest or in grief, and sometimes both. And we can now get some background from Simeon Tegel. He's a journalist based in Lima. Welcome to the day, Mr. Tegel. This all started with an attempted coup by a president who spent a fairly shambolic 17 months in power. Now, elsewhere, resilient democratic structures would be cause for celebration. Why are people protesting? Um, They're protesting for a range of reasons. Some of them believed in Pedro Castillo, despite his corruption and ineptitude. Um, But some of them are also just furious at the response from the government over the last month. Uh, The government has managed to um, uh, really have a heavy-handed response against these protesters. When they started, there was a range of uh, demands and tactics from the protesters. Some of them were peaceful. Some of them were violent, uh, but the heavy-handed response, disproportionate response, just uh, basically um, with the police using live ammunition indiscriminately has been completely uh, disproportionate. It's been a violation of human rights, and that has enraged the protesters, and I would say it's actually made them now even more determined to carry on protesting and to bring about the fall of Dina Boluarte's uh, government. Mm-hmm. Uh- How much of an undercurrent is there as well of disenfranchisement and frustration with the political elite of Peru, which is a notoriously unstable country when it comes to politics? 
I think that's really what's at the root uh, of, of all these protests. Um, the spark was Pedro Castillo's uh, impeachment, but we're talking about decades, even centuries, of marginalization uh, of uh, indigenous communities in the uh, Andes and the Amazon. Uh, there's a lot of discrimination and even racism in Peru. And Lima, where roughly one third of Peru's 33 million people live, is in many ways very disconnected, uh, certainly the Lima elite, very disconnected from the rest of the country. Um, and so the view is that people who live in grinding poverty, they may not have running water or, or electricity, um, have just been abandoned, really, by the central government in Lima. And they thought that in Pedro Castillo, they finally had someone who would who would champion them. And now that he's gone, through his own uh, fault, it has to be said, uh, this, this rage has just bubbled up and boiled over. Is the government showing any signs of listening to the protesters' grievances? Not really. Um, they did very quickly uh, bring announce that they were bringing forward elections from 2026 to 2024, but that's still um, uh, 15, 16 months away in April of next year. For the protesters, that's not, not good enough. They want immediate elections. And Dida Boluarte is not resigning as the protesters would like, which would trigger new elections straight away. Uh, she's arguing, I think there's some merit in her arguments, that if she does so, the country will just fall into further anarchy. But um, protesters really would like to see the back of her. And I think that as long as she remains president, uh, following all these deaths with uh, a growing public perception that she has blood on her hands, as long as she remains present, I think Peru is going to remain uh, simmering and could boil over again at any point. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. And the first thing that we need to understand is that the political system in Peru is extremely fragile. The political parties simply have very little representation, and they are mostly electoral vehicles for quite opportunistic actors. The formula that led Castillo to government at the beginning didn't even appear in the polls, and it uh, catapulted to the top because of the image of Castillo. Boluarte was a person that nobody really knew. She was just in the uh, presidential formula decided by the party bosses. And um, so to say that Boluarte was an ally meant simply that she was in the formula. But there was no connection between the, uh, let's say, some kind of party discipline or party identity. Castillo himself was invited by the party boss to be the candidate in the initial calculation that with his image they would get a few parliamentarians. So that is the, the context, the extreme weakness of the political system in Peru, the fact that this political system really does not represent the electors at all, and therefore that we are reduced to a very degraded form of um, representation. This is symbolic representation, whether the person who is in power uh, feels like me 
uh, rather than a representation of interests, a representation in, uh, in the political arena. So, so this is the, the source of the, of the problem. On Monday, Peru's prime minister announced Dina Baluarte's government had banned former Bolivian president Evo Morales from entering Peruvian territory. This is what he said. The superintendency has decided to ban former Bolivian president Evo Morales from entering the country and that of various of his Bolivian supporters for directly violating this law, Article 48, which establishes that those people who threaten or disrupt internal order do not enter Peru. We are closely watching not only the attitude of Mr. Morales, but also of those who work with him in southern Peru, who, as all of you have been able to see in the last few months or days, have been very active in fueling the crisis. So that's Peru's current prime minister, Ali Vargas. You're right there on the border um, between Peru and Bolivia. Can you talk about the significance not only of banning Evo Morales, but what this means for what's happening in Bolivia as well and for all of Latin America? And uh, where is Castillo right now? Uh, he's jailed where? Near you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, uh, Pedro Castillo is in police custody in uh, Lima, in the capital city. He's being held there without charge. Um, he's given he, he was given 18 months of preventive detention. Um, but yeah, in terms of Evo Morales, I think this is really about the government looking for a scapegoat and uh, looking for a way to explain away uh, social protests. I think there's something that a lot of governments around the world will do in the face of you know, a population that is on the streets saying, oh, this is foreign actors, this is a, 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 there's, there's some secretive puppet master pulling the strings, this isn't genuine social protest. And so they've chosen Evo Morales. And the reason they've chosen Evo Morales is because in southern Peru, there's a great deal of admiration for him. And just, I mean, just yesterday I was speaking to one of the protesters, he said, we want a, a president like Evo Morales. And the, the first reason he gave was actually uh, around the nationalization of natural resources. We said in Peru for natural for a canister of natural gas, which people use for cooking and heating their homes, etc. We pay 10 times more than in Bolivia for the same thing. Why? Because in Bolivia, natural gas is nationalized and the distribution is, is, is done by the state um, at, at fair prices, whereas in Peru is all privatized. Foreign companies, um, you know, sell it back to the Peruvian people at sky high inflated prices, and you know we 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 look at what's going on in Bolivia with with great admiration, and a lot of people in southern Peru because we're close to the border, you know, some people come to Bolivia for work uh, to sell goods, etc., at, at different markets, and so they can see the kind of economic growth that Bolivia's had during the period of Evo Morales and now with President Luis Arce. And so there is, yeah, there, there, there certainly is that level, that, that sort of image of Bolivia and the proving government is very aware of that. So they're trying to uh, use that to blame Evo Morales for social protest. But people were actually very, very offended by that because it, it means that they're delegitimizing the, re the reason that people are coming onto the streets. Of course, it has nothing to do with Evo Morales. This has to do with Peruvian 
uh, domestic politics and the way that Peruvians are unhappy at the, the, the national government. And to say that they are being used by some, uh, you know, behind the scenes puppet master is to say that they don't have legitimate reasons to come out onto the streets. And so that has actually angered people more. That has uh, put the you know protesters even more entrenched in their positions, more determined to sort of stay in for the long haul. And so I think while this discourse would play to the government's middle class supporters in the capital city um, and, uh, you know, the ideas they have about Bolivian indigenous people in terms of actually resolving the situation uh, is actually made it a lot worse and made the situation a lot more tense. Yeah, I'd like to ask Eduardo Gonzalez Cueva, uh, Peru, the, the, the modern history of Peru uh, uh, has been marked by uh, profound uh, class and racial struggles, of course, Decades ago, the guerrilla war of the Sendero Luminoso and then the Fujimori dictatorship. Uh, could you talk about the, uh, the demands of the protesters now for a constituent assembly and a new constitution? What is, what is the problem with the existing constitution uh, in Peru? Well, we have a problem that is very similar to other countries that experienced a transition to democracy. Think of Chile. Um, Chile and Peru were very similar in the sense that when we both achieved a transition to democracy, we kept the constitution that had been written by the dictatorship. And that created, of course, a number of political imbalances that had to be corrected at some point. In Chile, you saw how that ended. There was a demand for a constituent assembly. Regrettably, they were unable to pass a new constitution. In Peru, when Fujimori escaped the country in the year 2000, there was a movement towards an integral transition. That is why we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, trials on human rights abuses, reparations to victims. But at the same time, the constitution of Fujimori was kept untouched. And not only that, in link with that constitution, the economic model that was installed by Fujimori, the neoliberal model, was untouched, which meant that, uh, of course, Lima benefited from the resources that were extracted from the provinces. Lima benefited greatly uh, because of the uh, commodities boom that took place in the first two decades of this century, um, while the theory was that progress would trickle down to the provinces or to the middle and lower classes. So, so that is the original sin of Peruvian democracy, that there was a transition in 2000-2001 uh, towards the ideals of democracy after the personalistic rule of Fujimori, but we kept the rules of the game that were designed by Fujimori and for Fujimori. And what do you see as a possible uh, solution to the current crisis? That do you uh, do you fear a direct uh, a return to dictatorship and with, with the military backing that uh, uh, that approach? Well, right now I am extremely pessimistic and I don't see many uh, ways forward. I, I agree very much uh, with what has been said in this program that the. Um, willingness of the population that is protesting is to hold on for the long haul. Uh, they are prepared, I think, uh, to demonstrate as much as they um, can. And of course, the government is also pretty much um, in a trench and uh, is demonstrating that it's decided to exercise 
maximum force against the demonstrators. So uh, basically what we are going to see in the next few months, I believe, is uh, a simmering crisis with these kinds of spasms of violence, depending on operations that the police launches against demonstrators. Um, and we will have to see whether the protests actually move from the current area where they are, which is basically the south, the areas that voted for Castillo, the areas that have a high rural and indigenous population, to Lima, to the capital. I think that the uh, government in Peru has this very cynical calculation that if the killings happen outside of Lima, if the killings happen in indigenous areas, they are not going to worry Lima, and they are going to allow the government to function. That is, of course, not just profoundly immoral, it's ahistoric, and it's also economically suicidal because Peru lives from mining that uh, happens to be located mostly in the southern territories. So, uh, so that is what is going on. I think that we are going to see um, this simmering crisis, spasms of violence, and we will see whether the protests can actually have a foothold on Lima. Here's the news scene over the weekend in Peru, where the capital featured a roiling debate about this nation's democracy in a response to a blatant coup attempt. You see protesters and police there, fires burning, clashes in the streets, tear gas, all part of the fallout from the country's leader making an extraordinary response to his own looming impeachment. Pedro Castillo proclaimed that the government's impeachment process was basically a witch hunt as he was facing a repeated push to impeach him over alleged improprieties. Not only did he say he'd defy it, but he proclaimed he would seize dictatorial powers to just eliminate and dissolve Congress. The Congress that, of course, was about to impeach him again. Now, this is hours before that planned impeachment vote. On Thursday, he went out and addressed the nation and just claimed that he would have his own new emergency powers. He declared a national curfew and he asserted that he had the power, supposedly, to just temporarily dissolve Congress. Temporalmente el Congreso de la República e instaurar un gobierno de emergencia excepcional. What he's saying there was that he would dictate those measures. Word choice. Many Peruvians saw it as a dictator trying to dictate a coup in a nation that has faced real effective military coups before. Protests were swift and Castillo's supporters, though, were also vocal as this all played out. The protests continue tonight, and as I mentioned. But here's what's different now. Castillo is no longer in office. That Congress was not dissolved. His own cabinet swiftly resigned in protest. That impeachment he was trying to forestall went forward. A court in that country declared his effort an invalid maneuver. The coup failed. You might be thinking, well, that's a lot, Ari. I see where you're going with this. But that's not all. Peruvian authorities charged Castillo with rebellion and conspiracy. They arrested him. He's now in custody, as you can see right there. The government's reaction to this indicted rebellion from within, from the most powerful official in government, was to impeach him, remove him, and swiftly arrest him, as the headlines show. The sheer speed of that defenestration is remarkable. Castillo woke up Thursday as the president, 
surrounded by guards running the military. On the same day, in another country with a history of some of the worst horrors of dictatorships ever in world history, Germany had its own big story here. But today, Germany is seen as a functioning democracy and a strong U.S. ally in Western Europe. But it faced this organized coup plot so massive that the government carried out a dramatic series of raids on over 100 locations. In early morning raids across Germany, thousands of police officers at more than 100 locations arrested 25 people. Accusing them of trying to overthrow the government in a coup. Prosecutors say the suspects had acquired weapons, organized weapons training, and intended to storm the German parliament building. A right-wing effort to fuse Europe's ugly past with right-wing movements against democracy in America and to topple this Western democracy. The European continent's history is very much alive here because those coup plotters also rallied around the conspiracy theory that claims the real Germany of the past, read Nazi Germany, could somehow be restored by elevating this obscure prince who claimed a lineage to an ancient family dating back to the 1100s, I should say, dating back to the 1100s. It's just mentioned in that clip we showed, the 71-year-old Heinrich the Thirteenth. He's described as pushing a radical fringe ideology that rejects this modern German state and wants to reinstall the German monarchy. And you say, okay, Ari, there's a lot of things going on in the world all the time. Why is this the top story in an American news broadcast? Because admittedly, we don't do news about every other country every night. A lot of the news is nationalized, and you, you watch American MSNBC, you get a lot of American news. Well, this is American news, in a way. Because this is a glaring contrast, what you just saw, to what's happening in this country, which talks so much about being a leader on democracy, which means defending it against the criminals who would destroy it and rob it and steal it and oppress you. But this is a nation where an almost two-year investigation and prosecution has led to hundreds of arrests for the Trump fans who physically stormed the Capitol, who attacked police, who brazenly and openly talked up assassinating Politicians that day, Republicans and Democrats alike, Pence and Pelosi alike, as they quite literally obstructed and delayed the counting of the votes, one of several crimes committed, including the now convicted crime of sedition as well. So we know those arrests and trials are happening. While the political elites who hatched the plan to gather on January 6th, who urged those now convicted criminals on, knowing they were armed, none of them have been indicted on election crimes to date. So there are two categories here. And legally, the elites have been spared in this country, unlike other places. When I report on these two categories, I'm not adding an observation to the legal approach. I'm just quoting the Garland Justice Department, which has clearly marked these two lanes. So clearly, in fact, there was actually a tell about this division in the attorney general's recent special counsel appointment, where he named this prosecutor to independently oversee the January 6th probe, but only part of it. This didn't get a ton of attention at the time, but it is right in the strike zone of what I'm telling you about. That formal written authorization by Garland empowering Special Counsel Smith to oversee the coup probe actually reveals the division that I'm referencing. Just take a look. It says that Smith will investigate efforts to interfere with the transfer of power in the January 6th vote. That's bullet one there. And then it says it does not apply does not apply to prosecutions of individuals physically present on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. You see that highlighted part? 
That's Merrick Garland saying that there's this other bucket, but counsel, special counsel Smith will not prosecute people who are physically present on the Capitol grounds. Now, it's possible that Smith will push for indictments of those other elites. In other words, he is not investigating the people who are physically present. He's only investigating the people who weren't, but might still have committed election crimes, a.k.a. the people who said, hey, come to Washington on the 6th. The lawyers, the Trump aides, or Trump himself. So if, in this country, the DOJ gets around two years later to doing what these other countries did within days and actually recommends the indictment of those elites, Garland will then approve or deny that, and we'll know if there's a disagreement there under the rules. But this wider contrast is the point. It didn't take Germany or Peru two years to identify and charge political elites involved in public coup planning in Peru or the evidence of coup planning in Germany. Much of it was secret. And even if you put aside the possibly intricate questions about whether former President Trump now running for office can be charged, we know the DOJ is investigating lawyers like John Eastman because he was publicly searched for his phone. We know they're looking at their own former DOJ official who was a Trump apologist within the DOJ, Jeffrey Clark. He was on record pushing to abuse government power to sabotage the January 6th counting. So while some people do have a tendency in the United States to look abroad and see something different, the clear abuse wall at home, it's more of a mixed picture. How could we ever charge one of our own? Americans don't do that. All that kind of American exceptionalism. The news right now that I'm here to tell you about is just facts that places like Germany have busted up plots to track closely with the tactics and convicted crimes of the January 6th seditionists and that the political elites and leaders quite publicly and brazenly trying to end democracy are documented. The difference comes not so much in the plots. We have them here. They have them there. In fact, it's well known in political science that it can happen here. The difference is in our nation's collective response. And I'm not saying, I don't think anyone's suggesting some other country automatically handles this perfectly or should be copied in every step of the way. But rather how glaring the contrast is that one ex-leader faces immediate trial for that failed coup. And another is not only scot-free, but running to take power again, having stoked a multi-year movement built. On that insurrection, the sedition, the big lie, and ending democracy. So I don't think this is news about something happening over there. It's happening here, now, already. We've just heard clips today, starting with the world laying out the situation in Brazil. Chris Hayes on All In pointed out the explicit parallels between Brazil and January 6th. The Rachel Maddow Show looked at right-wing tactics and use of force more broadly. The World reported on the police action to stop a coup plot in Germany. DW News explained the situation in Peru, starting with the rare self-coup of the president attempting to dissolve Congress, followed by his arrest, protests, and a brutal crackdown.
Democracy Now! looked at the political dissatisfaction in Peru and their need for a new constitution, and The Beat drew lines connecting the failed coup attempts in Germany and Peru to the ongoing Trump-backed coup plot in the U.S. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from This Is Hell, looking deeper at Brazil and the return of Brazil as a member of the international community after the defeat of Bolsonaro. He's talking about establishing a new block of rainforest countries, which would start with Brazil, Congo, and Indonesia, so they can have more negotiating power against these predatory corporations, mostly based in the U.S. and Europe, that are ripping down the rainforest. It's symbolic of what's going to happen during the next four years in Brazil, which is Brazil back on the world stage as as a geopolitical actor and a country that pushes for peace. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And finally, this is a good time to make a clarification about power dynamics and political forces that I think is often overlooked but is becoming more and more important to understand. Unfortunately and wrongly, I think that the political spectrum from progressivism to conservatism, thereabouts, is often seen as actually the same thing as the spectrum from supporting democracy and tending to support more anti-democratic authoritarianism. It's an understandable mistake, particularly in the U.S. for obvious reasons, but actually political ideology regarding what policies we'd like to see in place and the degree of support for anti-democratic authoritarianism are two totally different spectrums. There are some relationships between the two, some correlations between the two, but really they should and really need to be seen as separate. So let's try on some examples. We all know about the authoritarianism that is core to Trump and his supporters, but there are also American conservatives who now make up the anti-Trump Lincoln Project style conservatives, right? Where these groups disagree the most is on support for democracy itself. So the Lincoln Party people are relatively anti-authoritarian in their conservatism. Now, if we made the mistake of thinking that political affiliation and relative support for authoritarianism were linked, we would make the mistake of thinking that the anti-Trump Lincoln Project faction of conservatives must be relatively moderate in their political beliefs compared to Trump supporters. But I've been around since the Bush years when people who would later turn out to become anti-Trump conservatives were flying their American imperialism, pro-war, pro-torture flags, high and proud. And there's nothing moderate about those positions. So it is evidently perfectly possible to be extremely conservative while also supporting democracy and opposing authoritarianism. Now, it's harder to find examples on the left side of the political spectrum because such a vanishingly small number of people who are politically progressive in America are also authoritarian. But in world politics and history, it's a little bit easier. There are huge examples of both democratic socialism, think Scandinavia, and authoritarian socialism, think the Soviet Union. One can argue that in both cases, the policies put in place are or were 
from the left side of the political spectrum broadly, you know, redistribution of wealth, strong government support for citizens, etc. But the two approaches for how to get those policies in place couldn't have been more different with regard to support for either democracy or anti-democratic authoritarianism. Now, personally, I think that the vast majority of people who have this misunderstanding about what they think to be a linkage between politics and authoritarianism is honest ignorance. But for a few, it is cynical manipulation. On the right, there is a huge propaganda benefit to linking left-wing policies to perceived authoritarianism through the memory of the Soviet Union. For instance, if support for universal health care is inextricably linked in some people's minds to Soviet gulags, then it's easier to squash support for an overhaul of our health system compared to if people thought of universal health care as being related to those obnoxiously happy Danes up there in the frozen north, right? So the idea that the left is authoritarian is cynically perpetuated for primarily economic reasons, and most of the people who believe it don't realize they're being lied to, and with the memory of the Soviets still haunting their dreams, they have no reason to think anything has changed, or, or even that there is more than one way to support left politics. Now, I bring all this up now to give context to the fact that the president of Peru, who attempted to seize control and dissolve Congress, as we heard about today, was a much more complicated character than the rest of the examples, and he came more from the left side of the political spectrum. He was a teacher and a member of a union, and from our perspective, you know, in the U.S., that is not the resume of someone we would expect to attempt to take dictatorial power. But my point is that it's not completely out of the question. In fact, it's just about right. Of the four recent coup attempts that I know about, three of them were from right-wing authoritarians. You got the Trump supporters, the Bolsonaro supporters, and the German monarchists. And one was from a reportedly inept, unqualified politician from the left in Peru. This shouldn't be seen as a contradiction or evidence that the left is just as authoritarian as the right or anything like that. It's perfect evidence that authoritarianism can affect both sides of the political aisle, though it is found more often, not exclusively, but more often on the right, and is bad every time it appears. Authoritarianism isn't good when my side does it, but bad otherwise. It's just bad, because no matter how noble your goals, when they are implemented through authoritarian tactics, you'll end up in a dead end of committing atrocities in an attempt to prop up your illegitimate claim to power. And one last note, authoritarianism seems to stem from a combination of grievance and desperation. And in the U.S. context, I don't know that two words better describe Donald Trump. He stirs up grievance among his supporters, he shares all of his personal grievances endlessly, and he's constantly desperate to find a way to win an election by any means necessary. Trump and his supporters may like the idea of him having some sort of dictatorial power, but if they could get their way and pass all their policies through legitimate votes with the support of Congress, I think they'd be perfectly happy to just do that. It's just more grievance and desperation getting stoked when they're constantly stymied by Congress or the courts blocking them from implementing the terrible policies that they want to put in place, 
And that's what I think is driving them more towards authoritarianism than they would otherwise. But I actually bring this up now, not just to trash Trump, but because I had a thought the other day that we may begin to see the rise of more left-wing authoritarians. As climate change impacts worsen, it will be the left around the world that continues to push for action. And as action continues to be stymied by the political process in general and the political right's continued opposition to action in particular, that may turn into left-wing desperation for action over a very legitimate grievance, climate change, which may very well lead to growing support for left-wing authoritarians willing to take action on climate change by sweeping aside democracy. I certainly hope that we can avoid that, but I have added it to my list of things to worry about, and now you can add it to yours too. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text message through our contact number 202-999-3991, or you can keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or basically anything you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.